0: ...and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." coming of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was a demonstration of God's love. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But in the fullness of time, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We're going to be understanding this morning that the coming of Jesus Christ was no accident. There was no blip in history. Folks, all of history was designed and orchestrated by God to lead up to the fullness of the time, just the right time when Christ would come to pay the price for our sins so that we might have redemption through Him, so that we might become the children of God. What a great demonstration of love. Let's find out a little bit more as to the fullness of times and how God had prepared that by turning to Daniel 8. Would you turn with me to Daniel 8, please, this morning? In just a moment, as we have con- has as we have done and will continue to do, Though this morning we've already stood for the reading of Psalm 118, I'm going to ask us to stand as we read the entire chapter of Daniel 8. We've done it every week as we've studied the book of Daniel, and we've been reminded continually that Daniel 11.32 gives us the theme. You can be seated just for a second. I'm going to call on you to stand up in just a moment. But Daniel 11.32 is the theme of the book when it says, with this verse, it says, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The key for future trials, the key for going through, and pe- the reason people have made an impact on cultures such as Daniel had an impact on not only the Babylonian Empire but also the uh, Persian and Median, Median Empire, the key for making a difference is knowing God. And so our desire through the book of Daniel is to know God greater. Before we read Daniel 8, let me try to head off with some confusion. In Daniel 7, we were introduced again to the four great Gentile empires. The Babylonian Empire was described as being a beast. Another beast that came and destroyed that beast and brought a beastly way was the Persian uh, Medo Persian Empire. Following the Medo-Persian Empire was a description of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then there was a description of the Roman Empire. And as an end part of the Roman Empire, there was a description of a little horn that came up, descriptive, excuse me, descriptive of what we believe to be the Antichrist, a future one who would come out of a revived Roman Empire, who would stand against God and His anointed, who would blaspheme against God and speak pompous words. And he will uh, persecute Christians and try to kill those who are the saints of God. Well, it describes him, and as it describes the Antichrist as being a horn, if you were to take the same horn in chapter 7 and confuse that with the horn in chapter 8, you'd have an understanding that, well, well, if they're the same... Then they must be the Antichrist, and if they're the same, then the Antichrist must be someone whom we already know came as part of the Greek Empire. A man by the name of Antonychus. Well, we're going to talk more about him, and so understand that the horns are different. And because those horns are different, though we're going to learn an awful lot about God and about His plan for the ages in chapter 8, we're going to have to make sure that we do not confuse the horns that are being described here. Okay? So let's read it and get an understanding. Let's stand together, please. Daniel 8, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shusham, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. Two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great." And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and he ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram, who was, removed, who was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and he broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled upon him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he had become strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up uh, to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he uh, cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened... Uh, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. I heard of a man's voice between the banks of the Uli saying, uh, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he had come, uh, I was afraid and I fell on my face, but he said unto me, Understand, son of man, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at that time, the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but, he shall, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and he shall prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people." Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision but no one understood it. Lord, it is only You who can give the understanding of Your Word. You have revealed Yourself to us and our desire this morning is that we might know You more so that we might trust in You with all of our heart, so that we would love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, trusting You and loving You that we would obey and do what You would have us to do. Teach us to know You this morning. Reveal Yourself to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Daniel 8 is given for two purposes. This morning we want to understand a little bit better about Greece, but we want to want to understand a whole lot better about God. It's really pretty simple outline. This chapter is given that we might understand Greece, but it's also given that we might be able to understand God. And in understanding Greece, really there is a two there are two beasts that are given, two parts. There's the revelation of a ram and there's a revelation of a goat. The ram, as we read about, describes a ram that has two horns. Now, later on, we're told in this passage that it represents the Median and Persian kings. It says that one is stronger than the other, and actually the one that comes later is the stronger. The weaker, then, would be the Medes. The Medes were under Darius and under Cyrus. They were servants of the Lord that God had raised up to bring judgment to Babylon. Babylon. The timing of this vision is about 551 B.C. It would be 12 years before the banquet that we read about in chapter 5 when uh, Belshazzar is being um, rejected and when judgment comes. That very night he was destroyed. So Daniel, three years after Belshazzar becomes the king, 12 years before the end of the times, Daniel is wondering what is going to happen and God comes and he reveals that indeed God is bringing someone to defeat And to bring judgment against Babylon. And the one who brings judgment against Babylon, that person will also be judged. Did you know that as the scriptures are revealing the Lord, even through this history, and by the way, we're going to get into this in just a moment, but with such precision of prophecy, there are many people who are assuming, hey, it's only so precise because it was actually written after it all took place. The precision of this passage is not because it was written afterward and that someone was tricked. The precision of this is because it was written by the architect of history. It's written by God saying, this is what I'm planning to do. As a matter of fact, this architect of history had prophesied not only about the Medes and the Persians, but he had used the very name of the king of the Persians and of the Medes so that we might be able to know who he is and so we might be able to recognize Not only who Cyrus is, but so that we might also recognize who God is. Keep your finger in Daniel 8 and turn with me please to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 beginning with 28 is talking in a prophecy concerning the people of Israel. God has said, look, you have disobeyed me, you've gone against me because of your immorality, because of your idolatry, because you have forgotten God, I'm going to send you off into, into captivity. You'll be under captivity there to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians will be my servants who bring judgment upon Israel. But when I am finished, then I'm also going to judge Babylon. Because God had promised to the people of Israel, He said, those that bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. And so God had to follow that. God had brought not only someone who would bring chastening or judgment upon Israel, but then He needs to deal with those people, the people of Babylon. And as God is promising that He would deliver the people of Israel after Babylon, He says in Isaiah 44, verse 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. By the way, if you read in Isaiah, you can know God through Isaiah. It's not just given, written so that you might know something about uh, ancient Israel. It's given so that you might know God. If you were to take a purple marker and mark just who God is, in this passage you would circle and say, Your Redeemer. He who formed you from the womb, our Creator. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by Myself. In other words, He didn't even need the help of natural selection. He did it all by Himself. Isn't that pretty good? He was able to create all these things. Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and and drives diviners mad? I am God who turns, and I'm adding. I am God who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited; to the cities of Judah, You shall be built. I will raise her up waste place. I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose uh, the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I'll go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of, of secret places. Now look at this. That you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Why would that be so surprising? Because this was written 150 years before Cyrus ever came into being. God says, I've known you, I've called you by my name, I've already got an appointed purpose for you. You're going to be my servant. You may be serving yourself, you may be thinking that you're doing your own thing, but look, you're my servant. You're doing what I bid you to do. And as my servant, I'm going to call you by name so that you will know that I am God and so that my people will know. Here's what he says even further. For Jacob my servant's sake and for Israel my elect, I even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. In verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun to his setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Look, when he prophesies in Daniel about the coming Persians and Medians, that's not precision. What is precision is using the very name of Cyrus and he uses it for a purpose. So that we might know that he is God. But he goes beyond in Daniel of just the first horn, saying here are the Medes and the Persians, the the weaker of those, of course, would be the Medes under Darius and Cyrus. The stronger would become the Persians. The Persians under Artaxerxes the king, Artaxerxes was the one who eventually brought deliverance for Nehemiah and Ezra. It was Artaxerxes who sent Ezra to rebuild the temple. It was Artaxerxes who, because of his servant in Shushan the palace, and by the way, the citadel where he had the vision, In the vision, he was at this citadel or the palace of Shushan. That's actually the capital of the Persian Empire. Probably about 350 miles southeast of where he was in Babylon. But he saw himself there at a different time and he saw the kingdom that was coming. And he said, okay, these Medes and the Persians who come and bring deliverance, what's going to happen to them? So, the Lord is not only giving us an understanding of this this ram... The Medo-Persian Empire But he's also giving us An understanding of of a goat Verses 5-14 through Talk about the goat When it says I was considering suddenly A male goat Came from the west Across the surface Of the whole earth Without touching the ground And the goat Had a notable horn Between his eyes Now look When you read this This is not tricky It's not even hard to understand Why? Because they come right out And they tell you who it is They said this is Greece And the notable horn will be its first king. Who was the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. Before he was 33 years old, he conquered the world. He had an empire that was far bigger and greater than the Persian Empire. It was Alexander the Great who with such speed and power was able to destroy the Persians when he first launched into Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. 40,000 men he used to invade, to defeat the Persians. They continued to chase those Persians out of Asia Minor until he turned south and he went down to annihilate and be able to destroy and capture Egypt. Did you know that while he was in Egypt, he established a city has anyone ever heard of Alexandria, Egypt? Under, ever wonder where God got his name? Alexander started Alexandria, Egypt. How's that for an ego? Anyway, he is the one who founded that. Then he returned and he defeated the Persians in their own homeland. He got so far as India. And folks, by the time he was done, thirty less than thirty-three years old, he had one and a half million square miles of territory under his empire under his reign. He was a great king And yet that notable horn Became destroyed When he was 33 He died of alcoholism And uh, really despair He won his last battle And he turned in despair And said what else is there to conquer? Wouldn't that be terrible? 32 year old man Thinking that he's accomplished everything There's nothing else to conquer And so he goes and drinks his life away And he dies In in, uh, the hanging gardens There in in, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace In Babylon Well he died And out of him came up four kings four kings they are even named throughout history you're able to go and see how the uh, the greek empire was divided into the egypt region under Pto- uh, under ptolemy then there was the syria region under seleucus Then there was the Greece, or the Macedonian portion, which is back home under Antipater. And then there was Asia Minor, modern Turkey, under Lusimachus. So it was under all these different people, and so these four horns raised up, and that's a matter of history. Here's the precision that he gives. But then he gives another precision. The precision of understanding Greece, as he says, then there will also come out of one of these... Four horns. There will grow one that will become great, and the great one that he describes—the little horn—that will destroy the stars, that will exalt himself above God, that will remove the sacrifices, cast down the sanctuary, and the length of his time of terror would be twenty-three hundred days. This one, through history, we're able to figure out. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Ant- uh, I'm sorry, Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes was a uh, a king. Through the Greek Empire, as part of the Syrian realm, he was part of the of the uh, of the Selucis or the family of Seleucis, the, the Seleucid Empire. He became great, and he was able to go down into Egypt, as the passage said. He was able to expand his lands over into Babylon, but then he also came against the beautiful country that be the Promised Land. And as he came against the Promised Land, he came against them with terrible hatred. The time would have been in the times 175 to 163 years before the times of Christ. 175 to 163 B.C. is when he ruled. And his rule certainly was with terror. He destroyed the stars. What is it talking about when it says that he will be given the power to destroy the stars? I'd remind you again of God's promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And as I bless you, I'm going to give you a number of descendants so that if you could number the stars of heaven, you'll be able to number the, the number of your descendants. I believe that that is the promise referred to here when he says, I'm going to give the children of Israel over to this one. I'm going to allow him to bring judgment upon those people. Okay, And as he comes, he's going to destroy the holy ones, the people of Israel. Sure enough, he did. I keep wanting to say uh, the wrong way and pronounce it the wrong way, but uh, Antonychus and... Antiochus, excuse me, uh, he came with 20,000 men against Jerusalem. When he came into Jerusalem, he killed all of the men that they could find. The only ones who survived were men that were able to run off uh, with a man by the name of Maccabeus. Have you ever heard of the Maccabean revolt? Well, when he ran off, Judas Maccabeus, with all of his men, they were able to go and they were the only men who survived. The women and children that were in Jerusalem, he carried them off as slaves. And so he definitely trampled upon the stars, the children of Israel. When it says that he would exalt himself, Antiochus was also known by a surname, by a second name that characterized him, Antiochus Epiphanes. Has anyone ever heard of an epiphany? Epiphany would be supposedly a manifestation or a revelation from God. Essentially, what Antiochus was doing in self-naming himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's saying that I am a manifestation of God. He's claiming himself to be God. He is the one who exalts himself to that level. And he insisted that the Jews not at all worship in Judaism. He said anyone who's going to worship, they must be involved in the uh, Greek worship of Zeus, and as part of that worship, then I am one of the manifestations of God, and you must worship me. The sacrifices were removed when he cut down the altar, and he wouldn't allow them to sacrifice any longer. Furthermore, he came in in December, December the 14th, let me make sure that I have all of the timing right, December 14th of 168 B.C., He had come in to the temple and there they set up, they tore down the altar for burnt offerings to God and they set up an altar to Zeus. And there upon that altar was a desolation, abomination of desolation where they sacrificed a pig on that altar defiling the temple and obviously blaspheming God. Well, you say, okay, Jeff, he's doing all these things. This is a a real man. He cast down the sanctuary. How long would this last? And they said the length of 2,300 days. Now, a lot of people have asked about that. They say, okay, Jeff, when it comes to 2,300 days, how do we understand this? Well, Seventh-day Adventists generally believe that those would be years. And so they said, starting with the time of the abomination of desolation of uh, um, Antiochus, he said, then from there, if you were to count out 2,300 years, you'd be able to come to the time of Christ's uh, return. Man, that would be great if that indeed happened. But 1884 came and went, and uh, the kingdom has not yet been established. And so it wasn't 2,300 years. Some people would say, well, these 2,300 days, you have to take morning and evening and divide it. So it's really a half a time. And so it's, it's, it's days, but it's, it's 1,150 days, which would break down to 3.15 years, approximately three years. And they say, oh, see, that works out. You see, he came and sacrificed Exactly three years later Three years later You'd have the, uh, the Jews Under Judas Maccabeus Coming back on December 14th of 165 Three years later And they would tear down the altar They would restore the altar of burnt offering And they would establish A, re- um, a memorable time called the Feast of Lights Does anyone know what the Feast of Lights is? They still celebrate it today It's called Hanukkah Has anyone ever heard of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is celebrated December 14th and following, and and, uh, in that time frame, it's followed as a celebration of the restoration of the temple. And some people say, ah, see, those 2300 days were exactly that. Problem is, you don't have that kind of division of the days. This is one of those time frames that I wish I had a better understanding of and I wish that it would be real clear cut and easy to understand. But most likely the 2300 days are literal days that really are descriptive of about 6.3 years or 6 years and 4 months. And those 6 years and 4 months would be times, if you look back into history at at, uh, uh, at Antiochus, you would find when he first came in and killed the uh, Jewish Priest Anias the That happened in 171 BC. Six years and four months later, in 163 BC, he was killed. All right, uh, Antiochus was killed, and so his reign of terror was over. So most people will look at that and say, Oh, that must have been the time. To be honest with you, I don't know. I just know that it wasn't 1884 when Christ returned. And I also recognize that it would be far-fetched to say it was that. But it gives background, it gives understanding. Now look, there are a lot of people who look at the history, the precision of this chapter, and they say, Ah, see, Antiochus, he was the Antichrist, and we can't expect anything in the latter times. But that's where they have mistaken the two horns that I was describing. You see, the horn that is the Antichrist of chapter 7 is coming out of a completely different empire, isn't he? He comes out of a Roman empire. And so he is to be raised up and have a a very similar hatred for Jews, a similar blasphemy of God, a similar abomination of desolation. He's going to do a lot of things that are already pictured by this man in history, but he is coming later on and we anticipate that he will come in this same fashion. So, Romans 7 describes the Antichrist, Romans 8 is picturing the coming of Antichrist, but it's giving us a specific picture through uh, um, Antiochus, Epiphanes, alright? Now... Having gone through this, you say, All right, Jeff, is the whole purpose this morning is that we have an understanding of, of Greece and the Greek Empire? No. The purpose is that we might understand God. And in understanding God, here are three things that we need to be told and understand about God through this passage. Number one, He is the architect of history. The precision that we're describing here is precision that cannot be denied. As he talks about and essentially names Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. As he names what's going to happen and the division into four. As he anticipates Antiochus. He anticipates all this. There's precision. There is such precision that if you are a naturalist... By naturalist, I mean that you do not believe in the supernatural. You'd have to say, hey, let's come up with some natural explanation for that, how this happens." So here's what they do. They say, this prophecy must have been written later by a bunch of very patriotic Jews who were kind of trying to build up the ego of their idea of who God is. And so it was written later and then it was only proclaimed or professed to be prophecy. Come on. You think that people that were intelligent enough, as I've already told you about the Babylonians, the Hebrews, they were intelligent people. They were the ones who were able to chart the stars, they were able to figure out time, they were able to figure out the calendar. These were very intelligent people. You're telling me people that were that intelligent, that given to understanding and knowledge and study even of scriptures, that they would be so So gullible and easy to trick that someone would come and write history but say, oh, this was written several hundred years ago. That's not what it... That's not... I mean, there's no explanation there. These people weren't gullible. You don't even have to go that way for explanation if you don't deny the supernatural. You see, I have no problem believing that this was written just as Daniel said. 551, in the third year of Belshazzar the king, he had this vision. He was able to give it... Because the supernatural explanation is, folks, there is a God. A God who reveals himself. And as he reveals himself, he is saying, I am the architect of history. And folks, this is important. Because he just doesn't foresee history. He doesn't know about it because he's omniscient and knows everything. Folks, he's revealing himself here as the architect. The one who doesn't just foresee it, he plans it. He orchestrates it. He directs it. He is the architect of history who's putting all these things together for his purposes. As the architect of history, understanding that he could name Cyrus by name doesn't surprise me. Recognizing that the architect of history, history can anticipate the, all, of the, all of the empires of the world and know what's going to happen. That doesn't surprise me because it doesn't surprise me that the architect of history had a greater plan than this in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem those that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and just as He was preparing the way through the Greek Empire He was preparing the way through the Roman Empire so that there would be roads so that there would be culture so that there would be languages so that there would be writing so that the name of Christ could be proclaimed and people could hear of Him and come to faith in Christ and what what happened? happened because God orchestrated history to happen that exact way that's pretty good, isn't it? If I start recognizing that God is the architect of history. It's not so much that he's up there wringing his hands wanting, "Oh boy, I hope Jeff doesn't blow it today and you know I hope Jeff will just just do what I want him to do. No, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He is the one who's directing us. And yes, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. If He is directing the steps of world empires Then folks, he's directing our steps And we can trust in Him He is God and we are not And as God, He is the architect of history By the way, through this supernaturalism I have no problem believing in uh, the virgin birth I have no problem believing in the inspiration of the Bible I have no problem believing in the creation of man By the direct act of God I have no problem believing in the new birth through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. I have no problem believing that angels actually came and revealed certain things to Mary and Joseph, that angels appeared to Daniel as they did. I have no problem believing these things because I know that there's a God. And I can't explain everything through what I see, touch, test, smell, sense. There's a supernatural God. He's revealed Himself. And you know what? The rest is okay. I can trust in Him because I know that it is in His hands. He is the architect of history. Furthermore, He is the judge of mankind. This one's not quite so comforting. The judge of mankind comes in and recognizes two truths. He is the judge of mankind chastens saints. You say, Jeff, what do you mean chastens saints? Hey, these are His chosen people. His beloved. He's going to raise up the Messiah out of these people. He had promised to Abraham and David great blessings for these people and yet... Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. God does not overlook and wink at sin. And as the judge of this earth, He chastens sin and He deals with it in the lives of His people. He dealt with it in the lives of Israel. It was God who in Isaiah chapter 1 said, When are you going to wake up? Don't you understand that from the top of your head to the sole of your foot, all of you, you're filled with bruises and putrefying sores from where I've had to chasten and deal with you. When are you going to wake up and understand but you need to obey and follow me," it says an ox knows its master, a child obeys its father. But you don't give me respect. You don't know and follow me. God says, "I love you. I've drawn you to myself, and yet you and your rebellion, because of your transgression, I have to continue to deal with you. I have to look at verse twelve. Why did this judgment come? Why did God allow such a wicked man to harm the Jews? Because of transgression. This wasn't talking about the transgression of the wicked. This is talking about the transgression of believers, of saints. God is chastening and dealing with His people. Now listen, this is something we need to understand. Because God doesn't just chasten His children, saints. Years ago in Israel, He chastened His children today. One of the greatest signs of His love for me as His child is that whom the Lord loves, He chastens and the Bible says that if you're out without chastisement, then are you illegitimate and not sons. If you claim to be a Christian, and yet you can continue to live in worldliness and sin and going down paths of destruction, and your Heavenly Father isn't chastening or correcting, dealing with you. You say, what's that look like? Well, it might look like when you get home on your bed, there's a the misery of having to commune with the Holy Spirit who shows you in your conscience that was wrong and you're going down destruction. Anyone experienced that kind of chastening before? I have. It might be the chastening of You never get away with anything Have you ever noticed I was a Christian kid Trying to be rebellious Wanting to go off in a different way I got caught at everything I did I used to complain and think Hey, I must be just an idiot No one else gets caught and in trouble I get caught at everything Later on I figured out Ah, that's because God loves you Jeff Whom the Lord loves He chastens And He's not going to allow you to go down this path You, you said Jeff Describe chastening even further So I understand it God, as the judge, chastens His saints in the same kind of way that I discipline or train my own children. I loved Ashley so much when we brought her home. I mean, here's this little bundle of... She she looked like a miniature me. Bald me. And the blue eyes And the warmth of the smile and the, and the fact that she needed me The fact that she was comforted by my voice And when I touched her she was, I loved her to death And I started thinking Man, there is no way I'm going to be able to discipline her What's going to happen? Then She grew up She took her slobbery little fingers out of her mouth And she crawled over toward the, light, uh, toward the electrical socket And she started reaching And at that point I figured out huh, The easiest thing in the world to do Is discipline your child I loved her so much I didn't want her to receive the consequences of that and so I gave her a little bit less consequence. I slapped her on the hand I said, this is a no, no. This will hurt the baby. Do not touch. Problem is I had to do it about ten times. I had to keep doing it. And I didn't give up saying, oh, fine, go ahead, plug away. I kept disciplining, kept training because I loved her and I wanted to correct her. Discipline is easy when you love someone. The only reason we don't respond to someone with discipline even in a church environment is because we don't care for each other enough. We overlook each other's sin. We allow each other to go off into adultery. We allow each other to go off into fornication. We allow each other to go off into all kinds of different sin and materialism. And you know what? If we're allowing our friend to walk down the path that leads to destruction, there's no love there from us. But whom the Lord loves He chastens. He deals with His own as children and He chastens them. And the present is not joyous, but in the end, the Bible says, it brings the peaceable fruits of righteousness. It brings growth. It brings what God has intended for it. The judge of mankind chastens saints and he condemns sinners. Condemnation of sinners that he is describing here is a condemnation where he says he will be broken without human means. Antiochus was judged But he not only died there in Persia, the Bible says that there is a second death. Whoever is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And there is condemnation as the judge of this earth breaks transgressors. I want us to be mindful this morning that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God and this God who is the great architect of all history is a loving God who orchestrated history to provide a savior Jesus Christ and yet if you will not come through Christ to salvation he is a God who is holy and just and righteous and he deals seriously with sin and he casts people into hell say Jeff I just can't believe that, that God would cast people into hell you just believe the Bible Do you really want to worship a God of your own imagination and your own making? Or do you want to worship God as who He really is? Answer me please on that. Do we worship a God that we imagine and that we can accept and that we think should be a certain way? We worship a God who has revealed Himself and if we don't worship Him for who He is, then folks, you're worshiping something of your own imagination and of your own making. You're not worshiping God. This is a God who judges and chastens. This is a God who condemns sinners. The good news is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Any who are condemned to eternity in hell are condemned not because there was no escape or deliverance provided. The payment that was made is sufficient for all. And if they... If they're in hell, they can't shake their, face in the, their fist in the face of God and say, It's your fault. And oh no, He provided the way. They are there because of their unbelief. Because of their sin. There's condemnation for them. You said, Jeff, what's the difference between chastening and condemnation? It's this. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. That's a child of God who's being chastened. And yet, they, He doesn't forsake them. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't forsake us. That's why, read today, Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. Isaiah 1 is the chastening of the Lord Where he says Come let us reason together Though your sins be as scarlet They shall be as white as snow I've chastened you And I've dealt with you for this purpose That I might draw you to myself And if I draw you to myself Through all of that chastening In the end There will be deliverance God has promises to Abraham That are yet to be fulfilled That starry host will be there the land will be granted to him just as God promised God has promises to David a blessing of Israel that are yet to be fulfilled when God will bring them and he will provide a Messiah a king who will sit upon the throne of David forever and ever there is a future kingdom that we believe will be given to the Jews but he doesn't give it he doesn't give the hope for reward as a blind overlooking of their sin fine, do whatever you want here are my promises. He chastens. Them. In the same way that he chases them, he chastens us. He condemns sinners He is the architect of history. He's the judge of mankind. He is the king of the earth. We found out through this whole thing that he is the king of the earth and that he is in control. He's directing all of it. He's not surprised by any of this. He is the king of kings. He is the prince of princes. He is the master over all. Why don't we humble ourselves before him? Why don't we let him be God? Why don't we let Him work His perfect plan and his, as His children? Why don't we simply obey and follow in His ways? Some of us, this morning, would have to confess that with slobber-filled fingers, we keep going toward the electrical socket. And the Lord says, don't do that. And He slaps our hand and He says, this will hurt the baby. We would simply turn and understand that He doesn't want to ruin our lives. He wants what's best for us. And if we would embrace Him as our Father, come to Him, He wants to bless. He wants to produce fruit in our life. Some of us that are involved, and I don't even know the sins. But as you continue to follow in that rebellion, would you listen to the reasoning of God? He says, I'm tired of beating you up. I'm tired of having to go through all of this. I'm tired of you getting beat up over and over again. You don't respond when I send the Philistines. You don't respond when I send the Morabites and the Ammonites. You don't respond when I send Babylon. You don't respond when I send Antiochus. You don't respond. Why don't you finally get the lesson? Come, let us reason together, he says. It makes good sense. If you would simply come, I'll restore you, I'll forgive you, I will cleanse you. If you obey, there will be blessings. But if you continue on in your sin then there's going to continue to be chasing and I will have to deal with you because I'm not going to allow you to go and destroy your own life. See? Daniel 8. A lot of people read it and they get all excited because they say, hey, look how much I can know about prophecy. I can figure these things out. This is great. But it's a lot more than knowing about prophecy. It's about knowing God. And if we would simply know Him, then we could love Him, trust Him, and obey Him. Would you bow with me, please, in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had to study your word. We thank you for revealing yourself. We thank you that history is your plan. And Lord, we want to continue to trust in you and let you be God and and follow in your ways. We recognize that you, as the judge of the earth, will do what's right. Some of us have been under chastisement. Lord, may we turn from our sin and find restoration with you. Others of us, because we are without Christ, are facing condemnation. May they come to Christ today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one is looking around. You say, Pastor, as you spoke, I find myself, I know that I'm a child of God. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. As a matter of fact, I know that because I experienced the chastening of the Lord. And I've been experiencing it recently because some of the sins that God is dealing with. And though I'm not telling you, Pastor, specifically what the sin is, I'm telling you there's some sin in my life that I need to confess and forsake and turn from. I need to be in a right fellowship with my Heavenly Father. Pastor, please pray for me. Is there anyone as a Christian who'd raise your hand and say, That's how the Lord's dealing with me? Hold it up just a second. I see a number of hands. I'd encourage you right there in your seat to confess because if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Find that restoration. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Is there anyone who'd say, Pastor, as you spoke, I don't believe that I'm a child of God? As a matter of fact, left to myself, I'm a naturalist. I want to find a natural explanation for things. I don't even believe that there is a God. But as you've talked, I start realizing that there is a God and I'm accountable to Him. And I don't want the condemnation uh, that I deserve. Pastor, pray for me. I need I need life through Christ. Is there anyone who would raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I don't think that I'm a Christian and I'm concerned about the condition of my soul. Pastor, please pray for me. Is there anyone who would raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I don't want to face that condemnation of sin. Is there anyone? Lord, if you continue to do the work that you desire in our hearts, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.